Hello, everyone. Welcome to uh, another Squiggly Animation podcast. It's the most wonderful time of the year, I dare say. It is indeed, yeah. Uh, it, it's award season. Back into it, Ben. We're uh, the, the, the most uh, wonderful, and then by the time we get to grand, uh, January, most grumbliest time of year, I think, uh, is the tradition for these podcasts. Oh, I'm pretty grumbly from the get-go. <laughs> you know, I like to get a head start on the new year. Well, you're, you're more efficient than me, aren't you? You know, I, I look at the Oscars and, and think, there might be something here that, you know, this might be good. And then by the time uh, all the other films that I've absolutely adored this year from the festival circuit have been rudely ignored, uh, I then break down and have a little cry over something that I really shouldn't be crying about because I'm a grown man. You know there's that old expression about, like, repeating the same mistakes over and over again is the very definition of insanity? Never heard that expression, Ben. Let's carry on looking at the Oscars. <laughs> it's a tradition, I suppose. There's that kind of initial, like, you know, grumble of, oh, well, it's all just an arbitrary series of decisions anyway that has no real artistic weight or bearing, uh, nor should it. And by even talking about it in any capacity, we're enabling one of the worst sections and most pernicious and destructive areas of the industry and one of the, the least creatively valuable and then we just talk about it anyway <laughs> there comes the winners and it all begins again and then we just kind of shamefully move on so let's have a look at the log list shall we <laughs> well the short list i suppose we're down to the the final 10 before the nominations i guess yeah there are some fantastic films on this short list i want to start by saying this but then there's some absolute crap on here Oh, there's, there's one in particular that I'm absolutely distraught that it's on the list. Distraught, it's such a strong word, isn't it, for, for somebody who's looking at a, a list. We've got the list in front of us here. So the short list is as follows. We've got Cradle, uh, directed by uh, Devin Manny. Uh, it's the uh, University of Southern California. This film actually won the Student Academy Award. So he's after the double there, by looks things. Greedy. Bloody students. Uh, Dear Basketball by uh, Glenn Keane, or as I've been accidentally calling it, Dear Baseball, which is a completely different game, maybe the sequel. Okay. Uh, Fox and the Whale by uh, Robin Joseph. Garden Party by a whole host of students, I think there's about six of them, uh, from uh, MOPA. But uh, the credited directors here are Victor uh, Kerr and uh, Gabrielle Graperon. In a Heartbeat by uh, Esteban Bravo and uh, Beth David from Ringling College of Art and Design. Life Smartphone by uh, Chengling Zhi. That's the uh, China Central Academy for Fine Arts. Lost Property by uh, Daniel Agdad, uh, which is eighth in line. Lou by Dave Mullins, which is Pixar Studios. Negative Space by Max Porter and Rue Kawahata, which is Iki Films. And Revolting Rhymes, which is uh, Jacob Shu. Uh, and uh, Jan Lakauer. Lakauer, is that how you pronounce it, Ben? I'd say Lakauer, probably. Yeah, well, there you go. Magic Light Pictures In that there. general area of phonemes. Well, I've got everyone's names wrong. What do you think of the Oscars list, Ben? I can think of many, many, many films that aren't on this list. Um, you know, It's nice to see some, but it's a pretty small handful of ones I had any sort of feelings about, to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Uh, I've not seen the Glenn Keane film yet. No. Um, is it good? It's very good, yeah. It, um, 
they screened it at, at Annecy during his uh, masterclass presentation. Uh, it's a very nice film. It's exactly what you expect from a Glenn Keane film. Uh, but it's mm-hmm. Kobe Bryant gets credit as a director, but you look at it and you're like, there is no way that Kobe Bryant <laughs> directed this. Um, it's it's 100% Glenn Keane. Yeah. Uh, and it's fantastic. It's just a, a real... Well, it's Kobe Bryant's love letter to uh, to the sport of um, basketball. And Glenn Keane has sort of lent his pencils to it and done an absolutely marvellous job in uh, capturing the, all the emotion from that particular letter. It's a nice little sort of insight into the process of Kobe Bryant. He's like, I've got this this story I want to tell, given my life and my my life's work and my abilities and who I'm how I'm regarded in this uh, in the sporting world. I know I'll get the Little Mermaid guy <laughs> to do it. <laughs> yeah, it's quite nice. It looks nice from the still. The still almost looks kind of like Bill Plimpton-y. Just from the, I'm sure it moves in a completely different way. Oh, it could be a little of, bit, um, yeah. They're sort of newer Bill Plimpton, more sort of stripped down, you know. The loneliest uh, basketball hoop. There's a fair few bits in the film that are like the still, but panning or flashing or really indulgent moments that are, are, are very, very nice. Uh, so that's you know that's that's clearly deserving of a of a space on the list. It's a you know a really nice piece of work. Have you seen Garden Party, Ben? Yeah, and that was alright. It got some chuckles. Yeah, uh, I think it was at Encounters, like the Late Lounge. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have particularly thought it was Oscar contender myself but had some nice little sight gags in it so it's the story of an abandoned mansion but as we're going through we're following these frogs that are now inhabiting this mansion we see little clues here and there as to why this mansion has been abandoned and there's bullet holes in the wall and food everywhere and there's clearly been some kind of shootout or you know somebody's come to their end right at the very end i'm sure people have seen it there's a big reveal where the previous occupier of the mansion uh, emerges and it's laid on quite quite thick who this previous occupant might be but uh, to protect their an- uh, anonymity we'll just give their job title it's the president of the united states of america i liked it i really liked it and when you f- when you obviously find out that it's it's a student film I mean, God, these students must have really poured their heart and soul into it. I mean, there shouldn't be any distinction between a student film and a uh, and a film. They are, at the end of the day, films. But uh, these students have really got together and they've thought about the pacing and they've thought about the way that this thing should look. The it's, the lighting's gorgeous, the, the, the timing, the, the pacing. The, there's always something interesting going on in it. And I've seen this film a few times now and I'm always still interested by it. You know, I might I might be inclined to agree with you that it's not the best, one of the best films I've seen this year, but I'm very happy to see it uh, as part of the, the the final ten. What else would you stick in the uh, in the good pile, Ben? Um, well, it's good to see Pixar being thrown a bone. <laughs> Negative space, I thought was lovely. Revolting rhymes, I liked. You know, I, th- I mean, they're good films. Again, I just don't. It feels like films don't necessarily belong in like a list like this. What I'm kind of thinking in my head is like a sort of personal top ten, um, and the disparity between that and and what the Oscars have whittled it down to. And because what has been established as far as the Oscars being a barometer of quality, I mean, it's just not. 
So I'm not really sure what my expectations really are. Um, I guess I'm not really surprised <laughs> by anything. It just feels, feels like they picked 10 films that ticked a certain amount of boxes. I think for me this is what kind of makes the Oscars quite interesting because it's it's almost like a gateway, isn't it, from the more general public into the world of the animated short. And that's why it's important to debate them and question them and ask why they're quite wrong um, in, in, in you know, point at why they're wrong. I mean, one of the films in it for me, if we're going to barrel through this, Life Smartphone. Why the f*** is Life Smartphone in the shortlist for an Academy Award? That's a Facebook film. That's a film that was on Facebook and everyone was... was do you remember like a year ago, maybe even two years ago, when everyone was uh, sharing the film and they're all going, oh, look, look, bloody smartphones are bad. Yeah, we know smartphones are bad. You, you, we're reading this on a smartphone. You're not making us... You're not giving us any great insight here. Smartphones have been bad for 10 years since when they first came out. It's 2017. Why is a film about smartphones <laughs> in the running? And also, there is a, a slight sort of issue with that central message of the film. Mm. Smartphones are f***ing great. Yeah. You can think of a million reasons to think anything's bad, but smartphones are life-enhancing, amazing devices. Certainly, yes, we are trading our souls to corporations and we're being you know, targeted by advertisers. And in many respects, we will never have any legitimate concept of privacy as we ever knew it growing up ever again. <laughs> that being said, I can play video games on it. I can look up who that f-ing guy is that I recognize in that show, but where the f*** do I know him from? Yeah. And, you know, that would drive you nuts for like a whole day before. Any film set in the 80s where anything, where there's any conflict or whatever could have been solved with a smartphone. If the McAllisters just had a phone on them, <laughs> that kid would have not had spent his Christmas alone. Yeah. He would have been able to get onto his Twitter and say, holy shit, my family actually left without me, OMG, poop emoticon. And then his 800 Twitter followers would then, you know, rally around him. There'd be a big Facebook campaign. There'd be an article shaming the parents on all the blogs during the rounds. He'd be the hero du jour. And the burglars would not go anywhere near him. Well, the, the parents could also just safely monitor him from Paris as they as they ended up in Paris just by looking at Instagram at all these selfies and the bit see in the background if the house is fine, it's not on fire, there's no micro machines on the floor there to trip up burglars. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, life sucked before smartphones. Uh, it's a completely unnecessary message. The bits about smartphones that you don't like, you don't need to use. <laughs> You have to be the smart version of the smartphone. You have to be the one to decide if you're signing up to this, that, or the other. Read your terms and conditions. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We get a lot of films, obviously, submitted to, to Manchester Animation Festival, and I don't want to go into too much, but there were a lot of films this year, particularly student films, that were very centred around social media and smartphones are bad. That was the message. Mm-hmm. And every single one of them was saying the same thing. And so when you see a film like Life Smartphone, an old film like Life Smartphone, up for an Academy Award, potentially, 
it does sort of wind you up when there are films that are not on this list that totally deserve to be sat there uh, in place of uh, life smartphone. You know, it's not it's not particularly ingenious in design, in concept, in message. It's not really an achievement, is it? Which is supposedly what the uh, the Oscars is supposed to be. Supposedly. Rant complete. Supposedly. It's meaningless. Until I win one, and then it'll be like, oh, of course, now they've gotten their act together. Well, absolutely. I'm going to be George C. Scott until the f- moment I win an Oscar, and then I'm just like, meet parade now! <laughs> you guys are the bee's knees. <laughs> <laughs> A couple of the films in here that I absolutely adore, I mean, I, I can't go without saying that Negative Space is one of my favourites of the year. Like, absolutely, definitely in my top ten, maybe in my top five. And it's one of those films that I thought, well, I saw, when I first saw it at Annecy, oh, that's a fantastic punchline. It's not going to work the second time round. And it so does work the second time round. It works the third time round. It works the fourth time round. Not as a punchline, but as a gorgeous film that you can just watch again and again. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of, it's not really punchline-centric. No. Like, the punchline is kind of a nice way to end it. But it didn't even need that. No. That was just a nice little cherry on top. Yeah, absolutely. Very well thought through, well paced film as well. Absolutely gorgeous. Have you seen Lou, the Pixar film? No. No. Well, let me give you the pitch, Ben. Okay. Let me just strap myself in for uh, <laughs> excitement. What if inanimate objects came to life and had feelings, Ben? Mm, don't think it would sell. Yeah? yeah? Okay, moving on. No. This is the good thing about Lou, is it's basically it's a lost property box full of like. Baseballs, hoodies, buttons, um, uh, skateboards, backpacks, tennis rackets. And it all kind of merges together to form the character of Lou, which is constantly morphing and changing and and moving around, which is really ingenious stuff, really well thought through, really well uh, paced and timed. And it's him versus a school bully, uh, like a nursery kindergarten uh, school bully. And it's a nice little film. Very nice little film. Doesn't outstay its welcome like uh, uh, Olaf's Frozen Adventure, which I'm sure you've seen uh, people's negative reactions to it all over the internet. I heard it's really long. Yeah, it's like 25 minutes or something. And, and uh, yes. yeah, right before, people are like, yeah, let's go watch Coco. And then there's Olaf there for 25 minutes being insufferable. I sell some f-ing plushy snowmen. Good for them. <laughs> If I uh, happen to come across Lou, I'll at least be appreciative of its brevity, I suppose. (laughs) I'm looking now at the 60-plus shorts that were technically contenders, I guess, like qualifiers for the shortlist. This is bumming me out, because there are loads of good films in this. And 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 this is is always the... uh... The kicker, isn't it, with with the short with the short film Academy Award? Is you look at it and it's why why didn't this get in? Why didn't that get in? Well, just like going automatically about like films that should have gotten in over the smartphone one and some of the others. Mm-hmm. Like immediately, I haven't even seen this yet, but I think it's probably a safe bet that the second World of Tomorrow should have been. I mean, I, I haven't actually heard much of anyone talking about that film, to be honest, but I'm just going to go ahead and go out on a limb that that one's probably quite good. Right. Uh, we're going on a bear hunt. I really liked because it pissed so many people off. 
Did you see the response to that with an ad? Uh, I saw a response to it, but I also had... Um, I heard a few people coming out of the cinema talking about it as well. The Twitterverse was crestfallen. It's all these mums, isn't it, that, 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 <laughs> that think that the uh, the film should have been just like the... Uh, it should have been just like the book. This, the book's all about this, but the film's just a film. It's like, all right, get over yourself. It's, it's an animated film. It's a very good animated film as well. Uh, Wednesday with Goddard, I think, is lovely. Yeah. Because Minard. Uh, the Tesla World Light, uh, well, I would say more than the smartphone film, yeah. I like it a lot, but, you know, it's it's sort of a kind of not quite animation. It's mostly pixelation. I guess it is yeah. actually animation, but Pussy, I think, is great. Um, yeah. She was going to be, I think, the uh, next guest in Intimate Animation. So, you know, it's not all bad, Renata. <laughs> Didn't get nominated for an Oscar, but you'll get to be on the Squiggly Podcast. <laughs> I was at the London International Animation Festival on a on a panel for uh, for women animators. I was the token male who isn't an animator because uh, you obviously have to you have to get somebody up there to mansplain everything. Ben, and uh, I hope you manspread it as well. I, 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 I well, like you wouldn't believe. Oh my god! Okay, that night I couldn't. I would have gone to that except for two reasons. One, my London limit is three nights before <laughs> I start to lose my mind, and I was at the London Festival over the weekend. But that day, I'd also uh, booked a date night for me and Laura. Uh, we went to see Gremlins, <laughs> and the guy who's like the lead guy in Gremlins was there. He was talking about Gremlins afterwards. Fittingly enough, I thought that would be a nice little sort of Christmas present to us both because we both love Gremlins. And this guy gets on stage, his name is Zach Galligan, and puts his knees at two opposite ends of the f***ing earth. <laughs> this is a manspread that generations will talk about. People will tell their grandkids. <laughs> I never sort of fully appreciate, I think because people haven't been doing it since it got brought up like a few years ago. It's like, could you not do that, please? And a bunch of guys are like, oh, sorry. And so, generally speaking, we try not to do that, even though it's kind of uncomfortable. Uh, this guy did not give a shit. I was in Gremlins. Get a look at the goods. <laughs> Meanwhile, in London, Steve is manspreading. I apologize for that. One of the one of the things that I pointed out was the fact that you know the the Oscars this year there's there's nothing there's nothing in a from from a sort of female perspective. There's no female directors, and when you look at this list of 63 short films, you can see so many films that would really have fit that bill and, and added a, a great deal uh, more variety, at least to the shortlist, you know, at least to this discussion we're having now, Ben. I mean, yeah, it's amazing films. I mean, Renata and Shpela Kadez, Nikki Lindroth from Bar, her film is fantastic. Rekha Bukshi's film, um, Ava's Hedgehog's Home. A lot of people who've been on the podcast recently. Oh, Diana Bombsman. I don't think it's like you need to even go into it with like an idea of like, okay, we need like 50% women or 50% men or we need to whatever. Just going by the films, like a lot of these were just better films. Well, this is it. If they had have gone in for that 50%, 50% thing, it would have been a much better result. It, 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 undoubtedly. Let's get rid of, say, Life Smartphone, Fox and the Whale, Cradle... In a heartbeat, and because I've not seen it, Lost Property Office. <laughs> I just fill in with any of the films that you've just mentioned there. It's a much more interesting list. Yeah. 
It's got so much more perspective. It's got so much more merit. And then you can whittle it down to whatever you like. But it's such a shame. I mean, the Oscars is... The reason I, I like talking about it and torturing myself about it every year is because it's it's highlighting such a missed opportunity. It's sort of a self-flagellation exercise. Well, yeah, well, back to the um, man-spreading again. It's a shame. I mean, I just think that a lot of these films... I just, I, I just have this picture in my head of people making these decisions and they look at a film like The Burden and they're just like, well, this is stupid. Like, you just see it going over people's heads. I can see somebody looking at a screenshot of World of Tomorrow and thinking, I'm not watching a film about Stickman. This is ripping off that Fargo episode. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because this list is alphabetical, so it goes Puppy by Gendy Tardakovsky, which I didn't see, and then Pussy by Renato <laughs> Gaziroska. That'd be a good double act. Uh, you don't want to put uh, Pussy before uh, a, a Sony Pictures film. Before the Smurfs, would you? Uh, which is where... I would f- love that. You would. That would <laughs> you would, Ben. I that would. That would be my, my Tyler Durden splicing pictures of genitals into Bambi. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go, Ben. We've got to wait now uh, until the 23rd of January. And I'm sure you can't wait, Ben. Shall we move on to the Annie Awards? The Annie Awards, yeah. We've had some uh, uh, nominations for the 45th Annie Awards now. There's a lot more hope here, isn't there? It's a mixed bag of like, ugh, and ooh. <laughs> like, it definitely, I think, is coming from a place that is appreciating all corners of the animation world, including some corners that I don't particularly like to stand in. My metaphors are on fire today. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so, you know, some, some not particularly uh, surprising entry. I mean, some are like, really, Cars 3? Yeah. It's interesting they they do divide the feature categories. And they see that's not that's not just interesting. That's fantastic because it is a real marker of quality. I mean, but if you look at the list that's divided, best animated feature you got Captain Underpants, Cars Three, Coco, Despicable Me Three, and Boss Baby. All those films could all exist in the same world. They could all have been made by the same studio. They're very bog standard. Exactly what you'd expect from a feature film. Each of them with their merits, but yeah, not too bad. Well done. Best animated feature, go for it. But then best animated feature independent. I would like to think, Ben, and I, I think it's uh, you're hopefully going to agree with me. But this is These are the kind of films we'd like to see up for the Oscar, aren't they? Yeah, in an ideal world. Yeah, In This Corner of the World, Loving Vincent, Napping Princess, The Big Bad Fox and Other Tales and The Breadwinner. There's some absolute stormers there, isn't there? They're films that are just more gratifying to sit down and absorb whereas the other films like mainstream films i find just sort of happen to you as you watch them (laughs) if i was going to pick a film from either of these lists to go to it would definitely be from the second list at least we know that there'll be a winner that you know we can be sort of happy that you know is deserving because i think that if any of these i mean i don't know napping princess so unless that's a terrible dreadful artistically barren film it might be a rip-off of sleeping beauty Maybe like a direct, one of those direct <laughs> video, uh, you know. <laughs> you just take it in that. She's lazy and she's all right looking. <laughs> so, uh, so what else is on the list? We've got best uh, animated special production, uh, imaginary friend society, feeling sad, oh last frozen adventure, pig, the dam keeper poems, revolting rhymes again, uh, and tangled before ever after. Have you seen the new dam keeper films? Uh, they're they're 
2D animation, aren't they, Ben? I thought they were going to do some um, CG stuff because obviously the original short was uh, uh, 2D, but everyone thought it was like CG with a special filter put on. I have seen the little clips they put up of the characters in CG, which I assume are like tests for like a feature. Yeah, maybe. Well, no, no, it's, it's the tests for the actual the actual thing. I think it's Eric O who's the animator. I think he was on the original, wasn't he? Yeah. And he's great. He's got some... He's he's absolutely fantastic animator. Now, does uh, Tangled Before Ever After fill in all of the gaps that we were left with from the (laughs) original Tangled movie that we have been waiting with bated breath for? Well, it it does answer all those questions that you had, Ben. Origin story for the gecko, perhaps. (laughs) Was it a gecko? Chameleon. It changes changes colours. Slightly more optimistic best animated shortlist. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, Glenn Keane, and again, Negative Space, which is great to see. And Hedgehog's Home, which um, uh, Eva was on the podcast a few podcasts ago. Uh, I think it's a lovely film. I think it deserves to be, you know, among the um, accoladed films of this year, so it's good to see that too. And Son of Jaguar. That was quite nice. There's an interview with Jorge uh, about that that went up a couple of weeks ago. That's been out, I think, since like October, but it was only on like one or two platforms and they just sort of expanded it uh recently mm. so you can watch it on your your phone in one of those special uh cardboard glasses thingy midges which we did we watched it uh with our manchester animation festival cardboard 3d glasses ah good stuff from our swag bag yeah swag bag it's interesting to see some vr films in the best uh, animated short subject Oh, he's pretty good. I mean, he has a great art guy whose name escapes me, but he worked with uh, him on The Book of Life as well. Has a great way of approaching design and environments with the kind of limitations of tech or budget in mind. So Book of Life was not a very big budget production, I don't think. Mm. But the approach to the characters and the rigging and things like that created a really nice sort of overall look and they, they did a good job i think with the uh the limitations yeah that uh, they were facing up against and i think a similar thing happened with son of jaguar like when you're dealing with what's essentially kind of video game level rendering in real time you have to think of a way to come up with a style that works and still keeps you kind of engaged i think patrick osborne did that quite well with pearl but to do something that's kind of cartoony, like Jorge did, I think that also works really well. So we go into sort of TV commercials. Mm. Um, they're really covering sort of all the bases of industry. Yeah. A lot of stuff that I'm not that super familiar with, like a couple of things like um, Wee Bear Bears and mm. Bojack. Big Mouth, which uh, I have sort of conflicted feelings about. Have you, have you seen it yet? 50% of it works and... No, it's at 60% of it works and 40% of it... I sort of struggle a bit with. I was talking with um, Claude, the guy who does the London Festival um, uh, screenings. He puts them together. We were talking about like if there are any worthwhile shows, and I was like, "Oh, there's a show, Big Mouth." And Laura and me talked about it on the podcast a month or so ago. And I think the the problems, whenever it's come up, are pretty much universally acknowledged. Is that it's like two shows kind of trying to happen at once, and you get these really great story threads about like pre-adolescent all the nightmarish shenanigans that go on with that that are very on point and then you get these kind of weird broad family guy type characters like there's the gym teacher who wants to be everyone's friend but he's sort of lonely uh one of the kids 
there's a ghost of in the attic of Duke Ellington, <laughs> I think. And he's like, you know, his his ghost sidekick for no reason. Right. It's like it's like the alien in the attic in American Dad. It's just like someone decided, oh, we need to put a ghost in here because it was a cartoon. We need a talking bear. That's sort of like something that if they could just maybe like sideline some of those elements of the show that just don't need to be there and actually focused on the stuff that was actually, I thought, quite important and well told and very timely, it would be great. So what's uh, I've not seen it yet. I mean, what circumstances should you say I, I view it in? Is it, is it sort of appointment television or is it like if you've got so much spare time to kill, watch it? Uh, spare time to kill. So. Yeah. Okay. It's not groundbreaking. It's quite refreshing in a way that South Park was quite refreshing 20 years ago. I think because of it being an animated medium, it affords it the ability to talk about certain subject matter with characters that are of a certain age that you would never see in like you'd never see in in like an episode of like the Goldbergs you wouldn't see the teenage daughter having a conversation with her vagina while looking at it in a mirror <laughs> and that's sort of like the worry is that people would sort of hear that premise and be like oh it's trying to be so shocking and edgy but it's really not even that shocking or edgy it's like it's just kind of honest and authentic i think about the ridiculously unfair logic that we are beholden to when we're going through puberty or just about to go through puberty stuff that seems like a lifetime ago but it all came to the surface right and it's funny for the most part that it's usually yeah. quite funny so I'll, I'll wait until i've gone through puberty and then uh, i'll be able to relate to it i'll uh, i'll give it yeah a we'll catch we'll catch up i'll meet you on the other side <laughs> general audience tv production i wouldn't have thought some of these were general audience shows big mouth Bojack Horseman, uh, Rick and Morty. They're not really... Robot Chicken. I guess kids obviously watch them, but they're not really meant to be for kids, general audiences. Mm. When you think general audience, you think of like something that you can watch with your nan and your like you know nephew in the same room. Yeah, and, and you, don't want, you can't really watch Bojack Horseman episode titled Stupid Piece of Shit with your five-year-old nephew and your... And your grand. I mean, you could. It would be. It, would be, it might be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. But more than anything, I mean, like BoJack Horseman, which I I still have kind of stuck with. I I again, I have a sort of. It's a bit of a peaks and valleys thing with that show. It is very. It finds it very hard to resist its own cleverness, mm. and need to just sort of siphon in melodrama. Like it, I think it feels like if it doesn't do that a certain amount of times per season, it's not going to be taken seriously as a show. Uh, and I actually find that the melodrama of the show makes it is is one of its sort of weaknesses. But a lot of people like it's their favorite thing. So, you know, what do I know about human animal based adult animated sitcoms? Yeah, I'm with you on the melodrama because uh, when the, the jokes are usually pretty funny. Like I, you know, some of the goofy jokes in it are pretty good but it's it's just so, so hard for me to kind of care about the pained relationship this horse has with his horse mother right when i've just seen the horse in the lego batman movie a month before <laughs> and that's also because lego batman of course like there has like characters such a tortured character bruce wayne and the way they deal with that isn't like disrespectful mm. to people who i guess like take batman super seriously 
but they it's still funny that you can acknowledge he's a pain tortured character and you can explore that for all of the humor in someone who has kind of put themselves in that situation whereas the humor in bojack horseman when he's talking about like the tragedies of his life and things like that that's not particularly entertaining it's just sort of like it's like a teenager writing poems Hmm. you know and leaving them somewhere that he hopes someone will find them and be like, oh, are you okay? <laughs> That's kind of how I'm affected by a lot of the, the BoJack Horseman writing. It, it's one of the reasons I kind of fell off BoJack Horseman is because of it was so... I, I couldn't really relate to it all, as you say. And, and I mean, the gags are fantastic. You know, uh, some of the gags. And it's a, it's a great show. But I dropped off one or two seasons in. And every time I say that to somebody, people go, what? What are you doing? What are you playing at? I just, yeah. I'm... I think if you've seen a couple of seasons of it, you've gotten what you'll get from it. Yeah, yeah. You know, I don't, I'll probably watch all of them as they come up because it's Netflix. There's always time for Netflix. Yeah. I'm brushing my teeth. Can I watch some Netflix while I'm doing it? <laughs> you got to get your £7 worth, haven't you, Ben? <laughs> uh, did you see the last South Park? I didn't Under know. Curiosity. Or recently, uh, they, they, they've taken some nice little swipes at Netflix. Yeah. Like Terrence and Philip get a Netflix show. But the Terrence and Philip, it's like Terrence and Philip now really old and past their prime. And, you know, it's clearly a shadow of what it used to be. But everyone just eats it up because it's Netflix. I saw the uh, I saw a clip of them climbing up ladders to fart on each other and stuff like that. That was it, yeah. yeah. And student film... Some slightly uh, more interesting was Cradle Again. Mm-hmm. Pulls Apart, that's interesting, because I hadn't seen that one uh, setting the world alight, but I quite liked it's it. Like NFTS, isn't it? Good night, everybody's I've seen um, bits of. I thought it was great. It starts off as one film, and then just becomes this psychedelic, swirling, uh, erotic fantasy. It's wonderful. Hmm. And it, Good night, everybody's I love it. I love that sort of... <laughs> <laughs> Uh, fantastic narrator throughout it as well that I've just butchered with a racist accent. There are like 80 other categories to go through. Are there any sort of highlights? And let's go through them all, Ben. (laughs) (laughs) Achievement for animation effects, character animation, character animation feature. I mean, it's it's excessive, isn't it? Or or, or thorough. I'm not quite sure which, (laughs) which one it is. If you don't win an Annie Award, you're doing something wrong. Like, I think I should get one, given how many categories there are. I don't think I've been nominated. Best bearded Bristolian animator. (laughs) Yeah. Best beard in animation in the BS3 area. Yeah. Freelance brackets. (laughs) Uh, Special Achievement Award goes to MDHR for Cuphead. Uh, That's been doing very well. Have you managed to download that yet or anything? Yeah, it's fun. Everyone has the same reaction to it. It's like, f***ing hell. Right. Could you maybe ease us into it a bit more? Right. The first level is basically like, you know, World 8 on any other game. Right. They really do throw you in at the deep end. But if you played 8 billion Super Nintendo platformers like I did growing up, you get into it pretty quickly. You're ready. The Winsor Mackay Award uh, goes to three people. Fight, 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 fight. James Baxter, Stephen Hillenburg, the guy who did SpongeBob. And uh, oh, Wendy Tilby and Amanda Forbes. Wildlife and is it when day breaks? Yeah, good for them. Those are the ones who already won an award. So you've got uh, you've got a running start. Good luck to the uh, the eventual award winners. I think that's happening February third at UCLA's Royce Hall. So 
get your ass down there and see uh, the Eddie Award winners for yourself. <laughs> uh, or I guess we'll check back in in February and see yeah. uh, see who won. Moving on to uh, the other thing that we do <laughs> in this podcast. Got some guests for you. Ooh. Uh, which does beg the question, who shall our guests be? Let's go to the big wheel of guests and give it a spin and see whose name it uh, lands on then. Is that how we do things? It's been so long since we've done this podcast, I forgot. Uh, we'll talk, I'm sure, about some of the Christmassy stuff closer to Christmas. We'll try and get one more podcast out before then. In the meantime, uh, not very Christmassy film, but one that will, I'm sure, provide a fitting distraction for the young'uns in the family. A film called Ferdinand from Blue Sky, who are the guys who did Ice Age and the others. All the other Ice Age films. Boss Baby, I think. Peanuts. Peanuts was quite good, I thought. Yes, Ferdinand, are you uh, at all aware of this story, Steve? I am. It's it's a well-known tale, isn't it? It's been done numerous times before. Wasn't it? It was a a very popular Walt Disney animated short back in the day. Back in what I like to call the day, yes, thirties, uh, I think. Yeah, it's an old uh, Spanish children's storybook. They blue skyified it. They scratified it. Scratified it. So yeah, Kyle says pretty established history uh, over there at Blue Sky. I mean, he did you know co-direct that original Ice Age film, and he's been uh, a part of a lot of their output. You know, and I think that what I have to say is sort of to his credit is there's a lot of authenticity to how he approaches you know the cultural aspect of the film. Uh, certainly, it's been Americanized in terms of the story structure and the characterizations and the broadness of the the comedy but aesthetically and just sort of like trying to get the environment right they did put in quite a bit of legwork for that he did a similar thing with rio he's actually from rio so he had taken the key members of the crew to brazil to show them around and give them a sense of exactly you know what vibe the film should have and what sort of you know, visual elements it should incorporate. So yeah, he uh, he did the same thing, not being from Spain, he did the same thing with himself, uh, and again, key members of the crew to go to Spain and visit the sort of integral cities to the story and translate that effectively. So, you know, that sort of works, I think, atmospherically for the film. I don't think it feels too... I was a little sort of confused because it feels like it's from another time, because that practice is so archaic. Bullfighting. That yeah, yeah, that you forget it's it's still a thing. Mm. So it gets toward the end and um people are sort of like snapping pictures with smartphones and stuff like that. I'm like, oh okay, I guess it's set in present day. So that that was sort of surprising, but I think there are elements of like, you know, obviously the countryside and the agricultural side of uh, the world that have this kind of timeless quality to them. Mm. It's sort of when you go into like the cities and the plazas and stuff, um that if it, it Feels a little bit more modern, I guess. Uh, so yes, it is out in cinemas now. Maybe a nice day out with the youngins. Uh, let's hear from Carlos Saldana uh, about making Ferdinand, uh, adapting a children's classic. I was always very artistic growing up, and then I wanted to figure out a way just how to use it. And um, and only later um, that I realized that I could combine computers with animation because when I had to make a decision like instead of going to art school I ended up going to computer science school and I felt to me there was something missing and then when I was able to combine the two of them I, I got to explore this side of me that I didn't know that I had but I, I, I felt interested in it and and that is way way back you know I'm talking about 25 years back or 27 years back when I when I moved to the US to try to pursue that so and once I found that combination and when I found that that 
that kind of like um, um, calling, I, I really felt that that's what I wanted to do for the rest of my career. Mm. How did the relationship with Blue Sky begin? Were you there like right at the beginning of them? Yeah, well, I went to I got I went from Brazil to go to the U.S. but to go to school. I went to school of visual arts for the master's program in animation, which was a very at the time was one of the first classes. So and, and you were talking about like ninety one. So mm -hmm. computer that would not even Toy Story w was out yet yeah. in the theater. So it was something that it was a dream. People were making shorts, were doing a lot of special effects for movies, and there's a lot of things happening. So it was very exciting times because. There's not a lot of people that could do it, but there was a lot of buzz around it. So I was very excited about that. And and I was, and at School of Visual Arts, like w the teachers, a lot of them were from Blue Sky, you know, because Blue Sky was very small, was not very profitable. So we had to teach in order to like uh, make ends meet like a little bit, you know. So, um, and Chris Wedge was one of my animation teachers there. And then he saw my, my work and he's just like, when I graduated, he goes like, why don't you join us, you know? So I was kind of like the official first animator hired, mm. you know, at Blue Sky back then, and um, and I I'm still there. So it's mm. been like 25 years later. I'm still working at Blue Sky. Yeah. So before you were doing the features, uh, what sort of work did Blue Sky sort of tend to do? We did a lot of um, advertising like campaigns. Like it was also computer graphics was in you know starting to become you know more sought after was a lot of you know was a lot of TV commercials that wanted to integrate products into the live action stuff so there was a lot of that combination and we had a, that, a very powerful software that's what created Blue Sky was this idea this renderer that allowed us to really create photorealistic images so mm -hmm. all of our award-winning commercials were the ones that we made like inanimate things come to life but in a realistic way um, so that was kind of our trademark um, so we got to do a lot of you know commercials on that level, but we wanted more. We always wanted to do a short. We wanted to do like we knew that Pixar was doing a, a film, an animated movie. So we wanted to try to do that too. So, but we didn't know how. We were small. We we're trying to work and get jobs so we can keep it. You know, the company afloat. Um, and only much later, like I think that in '98 that we're able to put out a short that took us two years to make, and that was Bunny. And then Chris, it was in Chris's mind for a long time, and we all helped out making it. So when we got it, finally got it out there, it was the first time that we did something artistic that came out of our technology and our minds. And, uh, and that kind of like got an Oscar, and that boosted us into the spotlight. And then at that time, we, we, you know, we, Pixar already had released Toy Story, like DreamWorks already had done their you know share of like animated movies with ants uh, no with uh, yeah it was ants that they did like together almost and Pixar did Bugs Life so it was that kind of like time that there's only two studios fighting with each other to just try to get a computer animated project out that's when Fox um, bought us and and decided that they wanted to do as well and Ice Age came to our hands and that's what's the beginning. Yeah. Ice Age is a really kind of established something I guess unique what you guys brought to the table in particular like those sequences with Scrat right. and things like that I don't think other films were as uh, other studios were embracing as much that the sort of roots of very frenetic mm -hmm. energized comedic timing with the character animation it seemed that that was quite unique about Ice Age at the time 
Well, I think that we benefit from being, first of all, we benefit from being an independent studio kind of mm. thing without the legacy of previous big classics and stuff like that. So we are a little bit trying to find our style, you know, so we had the freedom to find what we pleased us. Mm. So, um, and also Fox doesn't have a huge tradition in animation and, and, and we were the beginning of that kind of like a new wave of, of animation. So, and uh, different from, um, you know, maybe Pixar or even Disney, they carry that legacy that they kind of had their way of doing things. So I think when we put out something that was so fresh and different, uh, people just kind of like, whoa, this could be a different, this could be a different kind of animation. There's a mm -hmm. third wave um, of, of, of animation that doesn't come from either DreamWorks or Pixar. Mm -hmm. And we're very excited about that. And I think that put us in the spotlight, on the spotlight right there. Mm. You know, because I think that we we got inspired by many things. Got inspired by you know by shorts. We got inspired by live action things like Bush the Kitten, and then you have like Charlie Chaplin. We got inspired by Looney Tunes. We got inspired by you know uh, Chuck Jones and Tom and Jerry's. You know, we don't we we're not bound to follow like a um, a line of work that follows. You know, we inspired by Disney, so we got everything in our minds, you know, and then we create our own style out of those. Yeah. And certainly it sort of remains kind of an identifiable thing, like I could see sort of qualities of Ferdinand, the sort of certain characters and certain ways of acting and things like that. that yeah, we, we, we uh, I think we developed our own way of telling yeah. stories and, and the beauty of Bull Sky that we're, we managed to, to have, the project is very director driven, so we managed to have very different styles of movie within the same movie, but without losing the quality that we wanted to have in terms of the look of the movies, in terms of the stories we wanted to tell. So we go from stuff like, you know, Horton Hears a Who and, and Peanuts mm -hmm. to stuff like Epic and Rio, you know, so you yeah. have like completely opposites, kind of like, you know, an Ice Age. So all our movies are fairly different in, in storytelling approach mm -hmm. than, you know, and it varies on each project. So we. We're proud of that kind of like a, be able to have that diversity of of storytelling approaches to the movies that we make. Yeah, and also I'm quite interested in the the challenges I suppose of uh, adaptation, like taking a pre-existing story and making it your own. It's um, it's very tricky. It's hard. You know, like I I never done it, so this was the first project that I've done. That mm. was an adaptation. All the previous ones were like original stories yeah. like Ice Age and Rio and Robots, everything was original. Yeah. Uh, and this was an ad adaptation of a book. And we have done it before, Blue Sky with Horton Hears a Who and and uh, the Dr. Seuss story and then um, and Peanuts, like the, you know, the um, uh, Charlie Brown mm -hmm. uh, project. So, uh, and so I was a little skeptical at first, but then when I talked to the, to the family who owns the right, uh, the state, they were... They were okay for me to exploring beyond the the book, and um, and I told them I would be very respectful and very much interested in keeping the message of the book because that's what made the book so special. Mm. It's like it's something that is really powerful, simple book, but powerful messages, power, powerful ramifications of message that I could explore even better, maybe in a long format. So once I got the freedom to create the movie that I wanted to create, I was I felt good about doing it. Mm -hmm. Had you had a sort of connection to the book, or had you read it as a kid? Um, actually, I saw the short as a kid. The, uh -huh. the kid, the 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 movie was um, um, because I grew up in Brazil, mm -hmm. and then the book was not widely available there. Uh, was not that known, but the short played on the 
network, the children's network there when I was growing up, so I watched it. So I knew of Ferdinand, mm -hmm. but I, all I knew was the, the bull that smelled the flower, didn't want to fight. That's all I got. Yeah. You know, so when I moved to the U.S., uh, I had children, so I started to read the book to the children, and I realized that the book was much more of a, you know, the parents read to their children that were read by their parents, and then therefore their parents. So there was like a generational, multi-generational book that is becomes like favorites for many families and, and people keep the legacy. So I felt like, wow, this is powerful. And I read the story to my children, they loved it and we found it powerful as well. So that created me the, an, a better interest in, in the story and, and the power of that. Because these projects, they take so long to make, you know, four years to make a movie, easily 10 years of development if you need to, you know. Yeah. And, um, and you gotta love it, you gotta really find a story that you connect it with because if you in animation if you don't love what you do it's like it takes a lot of years of your life yeah. you know and like and so you got to make it worth it you know? mm -hmm. so you mentioned about like the values of uh, the original story mm -hmm. um, and how it was sort of important to to keep those do you feel like that's sort of something about the original story that kind of holds it up in terms of like today's climate and stuff like that yeah never yeah. I, I think that as resonant as like it used to be you know mm -hmm. like I, that's why I think people keep reading it because it's a universal message first of all like be true to who you are and stand up for what you believe you know mm -hmm. like I think that that's very very powerful um, and also do it without violence you know, like how you do that how you stand up for who you are without having to fight mm -hmm. you know I think that those are the message that I really wanted to tap into it and we live in a climate right now where you know tolerance and acceptance is being questioned, you know, a lot by by different groups, and uh, and I think it's a it's a it's a kind of like it's going backwards a little bit, and and I think that I w I feel as I was making the movie that was becoming more and more apparent, and it was interesting because now that the book com the movie comes out, it feels like it's a good time for people maybe to look and reflect a little bit of the the importance mm. of society and the role that we have and the role that for our childrens to have. You know, because the the children is the one that's gonna probably be leading the next wave of um, of rules and in, in, in society, um, and they need to be aware that you know, bullying is not cool. Mm. You know that you know just because you're different that means that you need to be pushed away is not cool. You know, and then in diversity and you know being different is kind of okay. It's kind of needed for the world to become better because they cannot move away from that you know this is the world we live in you know yeah. we gotta coexist somehow um, and I think that this is what I, I'm trying to push with the book with the, with the movie and it, it's again it's um, it's a simple theme mm. you know but it's a powerful it's a powerful theme that I think it was worth exploring mm. does it sort of help with like idea generation I guess to have that sort of foundation you've got your, your primary story that you're sort of true to and then for the movie you have this sort of I guess uh, opportunity to add bits embellish bits create extra sort of story arcs and things like that with the characters uh, the newer characters that are introduced um, is that a sort of satisfying type of creative process as opposed to coming up with a story just from scratch completely well they both have its um, plus mm -hmm. you know like uh, um, I think when I created an original story like Rio, it was very fulfilling for me because mm -hmm. it's a story that I wanted to tell, it's a place that I wanted to take people into, like it, I, I just felt very engaged in that. And in this one, um, 
I was a little bit scared about getting into the book adaptation, but I I felt that the message was so powerful and so good, and the setting was so interesting and new to me that I felt that I could go ahead and do that and have that message be told. Uh, so it feels exciting the same way. It's different challenges, but but I think that's the beauty of it. Like um, every project that I do is like the first project that I do. I don't look back and 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 kind of like rest on the. The, the, the successes of previous projects. I try to learn from my mistakes and try to apply on the next one. So, But I still have the same nervousness. I still have the same concerns and worries in every project. So it, uh, it always feels refreshing and always feels new challenges and challenging. So even though it's all animation, mm. I still feel good about creating unique new projects. It always feels like a new experience. Mm. And I gather that with Rio to help with the authenticity you had the crew spend time in the city right uh, was there a similar sort of approach with this film like did people spend time in Spain to yeah for, for Rio it was like I was from Rio so I knew a lot of it but the crew was not so mm. I, I may I, we visited with like we got a few key people to come with me and then we did a tour we got to visit a lot of places. Uh, you know, we we spent a few times. Like in, you know, we did the blue journey in Rio. Mm. We did the whole thing, and I thought that was super helpful. So with Spain, I'm not from Spain. I'm I don't know Spain so deeply to to be able to portray it in a movie. So I had to go. I had to go, and I had to visit. I have to do the Ferdinand journey. I have to mm. visit the towns that we wanted to take the story into it. Um, and uh, it was very interesting because we got inspired. You know. A lot, like we were able to look at the palette, we, l- we were able to watch the people, we were able to learn about the culture, we were exposed to so many things that we probably wouldn't be able to be exposed just by reading mm. a book or looking at pictures in the internet, you know, so it was much more of an immersive kind of experience that allowed us to create the experience of Ferdinand. Mm. Yeah, I saw some lovely um, uh, design work up today. Um, some of the sort of early designs for the character and stuff like that, and I was uh, wondering, do you have much kind of like direct involvement in the sort of art style of the film as well? Like, do you have make a lot of decisions as far as that goes? Yeah, well, I I work all the way on all levels, you know, but I have uh, key people doing the things, you know, and then I just, of course, like I'm the final word as I look at the stuff and help them shape to the way I see my head. So we, of course, the designs, like a lot of the designs started with uh, Sergio Pablo's which is um, an animator and then now has his own company in Spain. And uh, he did the designs for my characters in Rio. Mm. So he became this kind of like the first one who touched the the characters of uh, Ferdinand. And of course we bring to our designs a blue sky and then we continue to explore them. But it's a a growing thing. We look at the stuff, we see what resonates, what we like. And I have a a wonderful art director that's been in all my movies, uh, Tom Cardone, that was able to really take Push these this world to a different way because I told him like this cannot be look like cannot look like Rio, uh, and so we embrace the warm tones and the and the, the this kind of like palette of Spain uh, that's very different from Rio but still feels colorful, and uh, and it was a uh, and we wanted the classic feel to it so we looked at a lot of classic Spanish paintings and and inspired by designs by by artists like Picasso, Dali, and all those characters that allowed us to, um, all the art that allows us to figure out what would be the, the core essence of the look of this movie. So it's a, 
it, it's a it's a very cool process because it's a very collaborative mm. like with all the team but it's very focused it's very uh, creative and it's very rewarding once you see something that you like yeah and uh, in, that, in a sense I mean I, I know that the films tend to you know take quite a long time to come together mm -hmm. and so like between each film there's always sort of new developments in the technology that you used. Right. Was, that, was there anything like that with this film? Any sort of new territories you guys went to? Yeah, there's there's a few. In every movie there's always a few because, you know, like any technology, a year passes and you're already obsolete, you know. Yeah. And uh, with animation, it's the same. You know, a year goes by and then there's new tools that you have to develop. Whatever you had before doesn't work anymore, so you have to redo them or you have to upgrade them. Mm -hmm. So there's always this challenge. But, uh, you know, for me, the, the biggest challenge in every movie is the story, is trying to crack it. Because there's no technology in the world that will solve that problem for you. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you have to solve that one first and then see what you need. And then the technology will figure out a way to do it. You know, uh, it doesn't work the other way around. It can't work the other way around. So, so it's that's always the big challenge. But 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 for this one, like Blue Sky was created under uh, the um, w when it was created, we have this this software that allows like photorealistic rendering. Hmm. We use radiosity. We're the only studio back then that you know had a technology to do radiosity, but it was so expensive. The computers were not ready for the software that we we're creating. So that was like a really something that we we could never fully apply on a movie. Even up to today, we, we, we struggle to get that because it's so hard to do it. Mm. And what Radiosity does for us is just like allows you to create the environments with minimum amount of lights. So we, you don't need to compensate as much because a lot of the stuff comes naturally mm. because the software allows you to do it. So we light like in the movie set. So. Ferdinand was the first movie that we actually were able to fully use that capability. And, and, you know, pretty much the whole third act was, like, done with radiosity, which mm. we thought was going to be, like, impossible to do. Like, and believe me, we couldn't do that five years ago, you know. Mm. And now we're able to do everything. So the richness of the colors, the reflections, the everything that makes that world so beautiful and impactful was done with our technology that was developed 30 years ago. That you know that very few studios have and are able to use it for its full power. So that for us was a huge accomplishment. You know, like we've been trying to get to this point for a long time, and finally we got there. So mm -hmm. you mentioned uh, earlier that the essentially to get it off the ground initially you had the blessing of the estate. Mm -hmm. um, is, are those people have they been able to follow the progress of the film? Like have they seen? No, they, they haven't seen much. You mm -hmm. know, I had a conversation with them before they give the rights, and it was a, a, the only book that their father, their grandfather, kind of wrote. Mm -hmm. You know, back then, um, and it was like that was it. And so, I I don't know if the studio had shared or they had a special screening with the family and all that, but uh, but we had that meeting, and after that, they gave like me the okay to move forward. Mm -hmm. So I assume for the next little while you'll be sort of behind this film um, do you have any sort of immediate plans like for the next project or the things on the boil that can be discussed at all well in, in, this is the the situation I find myself now like uh, in the previous movies like my movies always overlapped like Ice Age 3 overlapped with Rio that overlapped with Rio 2 and then now it's overlapped overlapped with Ferdinand so and then I decided that I needed a break just because I want to try to figure out a way to 
to do a live action project, to do to venture into some other explorations. Like, you know, I wanted to do a hybrid, like something like Jungle Book that has like a lot of animation but also has live action. So mm. I'm in the process of like exploring different routes of storytelling that could use mixed media and, and different ways of doing it. Just for the fun of the challenge. I always connected with animation. Mm. And I always be doing something related to animation. And I have other animated projects that are pretty much embryonic. I can't talk too much about them, but they but they are on the works. Mm -hmm. But I think I want to dedicate this next year just to figure out a, a live action project that I could get involved with, and um, and see what I can do with like uh, you know storytelling, with actors and you know real cameras and things like that. So I'm I'm excited about that possibility. Thank you, Carlos. And Ferdinand is out in cinemas very soon, if not now. I know it's previewing at this point, and I think uh, by the end of the week it'll be on general release. So uh, keep your eyes open for that, if it seems like your cup of tea. Elsewhere, in uh, the wonderful and multifaceted world of animation, here's a project that is sort of occupies another area altogether of animation. This is a VR project called Scenario. So this is a uh, relatively recent Google Spotlight Stories. Came out toward the end of last month. And really nice, another one that we uh, previewed in Annecy. I don't know the, the, the best way of describing this film. It's it's a real visual feast, isn't it? It's loads of little, almost bits of confetti, but also like the pins in maps uh, spinning around and morphing from what you imagine to be single-cell organisms through to fish, through to birds, through to... Uh, and and really, you have to put some work in for this one, don't you? You really have to spin your head around and and follow the uh, the little creatures as they evolve and, and and merge around you. Well, I think that that's something that a good VR film or VR experience really kind of needs up its sleeve is something that holds up a bit to multiple viewing. And we were talking about like the concessions an art designer has to make in terms of keeping up with the real-time rendering that uh, these films demand. And I think that the design style of this film is wonderful. Um, it's really not... I mean, it's not like, you know, there's no key narrative that's going to change your life. It is a abstract sort of expression. It's like visual music, which makes sense, because Scott is generally considered... Uh, his primary deal is he's a musician. In fact, he's the main musician for the Google Spotlight Stories. And uh, we had him on the uh, Animation Composed podcast about a year ago, talking about exactly that. So he's sort of, I guess, perhaps just sort of by osmosis of being involved with all these projects, a window opened up where he could uh, get involved and uh, throw his own hat into the ring. And he came up with this. So yeah, it's obviously um, going to have a certain degree of audio consideration, uh, this film, uh, perhaps even beyond what the other films have had. I think certainly as a sonic experience, it's uh, that's a huge, huge part of it. I mean, obviously the audio and the music in any of these VR films is very, you know, a lot of their successes, experiences kind of hinge on it. But this, it's sort of really like, it's way more front and center, I suppose, is like a very important part of the film. And technically speaking, I think it's quite uh, ambitious. According to these notes I have here, it employs the latest audio technology. Spotlight and Google's VR teams have been perfecting for over four years. Object-based emitters and motion simulation, immersive acoustics and binaural playback allows the viewer to locate a sound in space precisely 
and the sound to dynamically adapt to the viewer's movement in high fidelity, all in real time. So, you know, watch it wearing headphones. Yeah. So Scott Stafford directed this with Chromosphere. This was an animation studio founded by Kevin Dutt. They're also dipping their toes into the waters of VR films. Good on them. A good pairing. I, I think what's so. good about this particular film is it, because it's so simple in its design, in terms of you know what's actually on screen, it, it kind of answers a lot of the questions that I've had about you know the predicaments for layout and things in in VR because when you're making an animated film you have to put a lot of consideration into your your staging and layout and things like that and obviously when you're doing a background you don't want that to be too distracting but with VR where you can look absolutely anywhere and your attention isn't necessarily on the act, act action that sometimes can ruin a film so these people that are making VR films are quite brave in the fact that um, they're putting so much into the background. Uh, particularly um, Jorge uh, Gautierrez's uh, Son of Jaguar film, we talked about earlier on. You're looking at the crowd and you're looking at the people jumping up and down, looking for the repetition and, and stuff like that. You kind of miss stuff that's going on on the actual uh, ring, which means, I mean, it makes for great repeated viewing and things like that, but um, this film is a real, you're really engaged with the whole thing. And it feels more like a complete film. Um, I'm not saying that the other films aren't complete, but when you're engaged with the actual action and you really feel a bit more, uh, the film feels a lot more complete, if that makes sense. I think I understand what you're saying, yeah. For a lot of films that are kind of narrative-based, the idea is, okay, you'll watch it once for the story and then you'll watch it again to pick up at all the little details which is a good idea in theory. And then probably what ends up happening quite a lot is people watch it and then they get distracted by the little details. And so then they would need to watch it to really properly get the story. But then will they ever get around to it? A film that I thought dealt with that really, really well was Rain or Shine, uh, Felix's film. Oh, yeah. The distractions are fairly small, but it definitely halts the main action in a way that, you know, if you're, you know, if you go on a kind of exploratory, the story doesn't progress without you. Whereas I don't think that really happens with like Pearl, for example. Mm. I may be wrong, but I I think that Pearl just kind of moves along because it sort of stays in time with that song. There may be moments where you have a sort of opportunity to kind of like do a sort of self-imposed intermission, but I, I kind of feel like it doesn't. I maybe I'll see. I'll double check. Actually, I won't. I'm not going to bother. <laughs> I'll just I'll just get, be content with maybe being wrong. You're, you're making uh, <laughs> you're making work for yourself, and then you're cancelling that work. You're very efficient, Ben. My productivity has just increased. <laughs> so I thought that was dealt with really well, and stuff like Rain or Shine. I think that Ardman film also did a quite good job of that. Mm, special delivery. That definitely helps if you kind of get distracted. With this film, it's less of a concern because it's, again, more of a kind of animation experience than a film. You can appreciate what is happening with these kind of abstract character forms, but it's not super vital that you take it all in and get every facet of the story the first time viewing. And it's a film that you want to watch a couple of times, because it's, you know, like I said, it's very nice musically, it's very nice in terms of the oral accompaniment, and it's very nice in terms of the visual spectacle to it. 
it's not doing something super cartoony or with characters in a way that a lot of these films tend to do. Mm. So uh, we uh, got to see a preview of that at the Annecy Festival. Uh, here is our Squiggly Features correspondent, Laura Beth, talking with Scott Stafford about his film Scenario. I started um, on the first Spotlight story. Um, it was called Windy Day with uh, uh, Jan Pinkova directing. Um, Doug Sweetland, who I had composed uh, the music for his, his uh, Pixar short, Presto, um, was involved in Windy Day, and he brought me in. Um, and really just uh, through... Uh, I, I ended up working with, um, with the team on every Spotlight story in one capacity or another, usually as a composer, but sometimes as a musical director and sound supervisor working with other artists. Um, and what we end up doing is we're, you know, we're building our own tools um, to actually make VR content. Um, and every production is this race um, where you're building the tools as you're creating a production on a timeline with deadlines. And as a result, you get... Um, a number of tools that seem to be pretty randomly, uh, you know, generated, and, and it's it's a it's a great thing. But what are the things that? It, this was a moment where we stepped back and we were in between shows. Um, we knew that we were going to start working with Jorge Gutierrez, and it was an opportunity to ask ourselves, what is what's missing? What haven't we done? And it was actually it turned out it was less about the tools themselves as creatively. Um, sound in VR is such a, an incredible opportunity and, and challenge because it's, it has uh, some additional importance um, that you don't have in film and TV and other media um, in terms of orientation and balance and telling the story that's off the screen. It just It's something that happens in film, but it's just all the more important in VR for a number of reasons. And so it was just this opportunity. Um, they said they wanted me to do an experiment, and I pitched the idea of making it something, you know, very beautiful, because I feel that uh, um, having design and something beautiful, and um, basically I would put it like this: uh, beauty is a sort of a data point. You can make things work, yeah. but can you make something beautiful? And that's that's how you know it's working. And so um, I had a very short, very brief period of time where I thought about a concept um, that was driven mostly by sound and music. I wanted to do all kinds of interesting things with different formats, different surround formats, uh, sound field approaches versus object-based sound object uh, approaches. Um, and what are some creative techniques that, that you can use? And one of the things I'm... <clears throat> really excited about with uh, Scenaria is that um, it's a chance to use all of them, but ideally in, in a way that people have no idea, you know, it's, it, they just, it just sounds beautiful and they're having a, an, a, an immersive experience and they know what they're looking at and they know where they are. Um, so the idea was to create something that was, that was very beautiful but very abstract, um, totally unlike any of other, other shows where the visuals are evocative and suggestive, but the sound actually tells you exactly like, you know, where you are. Sometimes you're underwater, you're in a forest. You're getting a lot of those cues uh, uh, principally through sound. Um, and so it was exploring that relationship and then looking at different 
ways of telling a story with sound and with music. Um, so we recorded all these musicians using um, a really interesting mic array um, that gave us a perfect 360 image of the ensemble. Um, and then they're placed in the space in a way that I call um, uh, anamorphic, where in anamorphic art, like there's, uh, um, I'm sure a lot of your listeners are, are aware of some of it, but it's been around for, for centuries. It's art that uh, plays with a dissonance, like a, a sort of dimensional dissonance between 2D and 3D. Um, where you could be looking right at something and it doesn't make any sense, and then you look from an ext- a very specific extreme angle in 3D, um, and all of a sudden you realize, like, there's this famous Flemish painting called The Ambassadors, where if you look right at it, you see just a portrait of two ambassadors. It looks very uh, unremarkable, uh, but there's a strange shape beneath their feet. And if you... Um, I'm just going to wait for that to go away... That's such a great French sound effect for sound. No, no, for sound people, it's like, oh yeah, it's the French siren with the Doppler. Um, so, uh, so you see the strange shape at their feet, but if you look um, da- from down the hallway at an extreme angle, it's like a human skull called a memento mori, which is this, you know, it's so it's like this. It feels like a very 21st century art technique, but it's, we've been doing it as a species for hundreds of years, so I asked myself, what, what would that sound like? How, what, what would be uh, a musical um, or, a, or a mix or sound that would be anamorphic? So the idea is you place these emitters in space but have t- 2D panning. So the idea is if you could imagine a green object that you think is one object and then you turn your head and you realize that there's a blue object behind you and a yellow object in front of you, and then you... You know, so you think it's here, and then as you turn, it's two different things. So mixed using that technique, which is really neat. Um, so it was just an opportunity to just have a totally sound-driven uh, experience. Oh, and I should also say that um, the very first thing I did was I called Kevin Dart um, at Chromosphere, who directed Scenario with me, and an incredibly talented um, visual artist, um, art director, um, and he has this great company called Chromosphere. And so very early on in the process, I knew that we wanted this to be beautiful. And this, as much as everyone was calling it a sound-driven thing, it's about the interaction of sound and visuals. And the visuals actually had to do something really tricky, which is be abstract and be 2D and 3D space. Um, and I just sort of spewed about 100 ideas at him in a very short period of time because we were, we were in production, basically, within a couple weeks um, from the beginning of the concept. Um, so uh, it was just amazing, like, working with them. Like, within a couple days, I would get these drawings back, and I would just want to cry. Um, and and in, in a way, if I had to put it sort of in a, sent- in a couple sentences, one of the things I wanted to do with Scenaria... Because, of course, the, the, the strategic reasons for it were very sort of technical and, you know... But um, artistically, what I wanted to do and emotionally is give, give someone a wow experience that was also emotionally stirring, but they don't know why. Yeah. 
because there's nothing that really happens story-wise. There's, you know, nobody dies, nobody loses their love, nobody, there's no misunderstandings, you know. But, but hopefully, by the end, you've had some sort of, you know, you just want to take people's breath away a little bit. Although Scenario was really <clears throat> meant to be this, <clears throat> and, in, and is this very uh, sound-driven uh, experience, the visuals were um, incredibly important because it's really about the relationship of visuals, <clears throat> the layout, the space, and the sound that you're hearing. <clears throat> Excuse me, and now, okay. now I need the water. So the visuals were very important. Um, and so it was actually Rashid El-Gharab, our project lead, um, who supervises the whole group, the Spotlight Stories group. <clears throat> um, he had just seen this short, and I think they had been talking to Kevin Dart about doing something for, for a while. Um, but he did this beautiful short um, that just did ex almost exactly what I was looking for. It was one of those magical moments. So we reached out, and I gave this concept um, in a very loose form to Kevin and his team at Chromosphere um, and just threw out idea after idea after idea and I had this this visual treatment which you know is, I, I'm not a visual artist um, so it was quite funny but he was able to you know comb through it and find the stuff that really stuck um, and together we, we made Scenaria and it became really clear in the first conversation that I wanted to bring him on to direct with me um, because it really is the, the, you know, the two of us telling the story together, the visuals and the sound. Excellent. In terms of like approaching VR as a way of telling a story, how did you get yourself into the mindset of sort of understanding that kind of full 360 experience? Um, <clears throat> well, we had um, at Spotlight Stories, uh, there's been an amazing opportunity to get introduced to it um, even before VR was was really practically possible. It was still very much in a sort of a tech demo phase. Um, the refresh rates and the frame rates and just the technology in 2012 wasn't you you couldn't really tell an emotional story and have and have a really pleasant experience. Um, then it's really been in the last three years that that's been happening. But, so we started in Mobile 360, which um, really tackles m many, if not most, of the same challenges of VR, where how do you tell a story that's happening all around you? Um, it was on the, on the very first project that I worked on, um, where Jan Pinkova started using the analogy of theater in the round um, to describe the approach, how to direct people's attention. So... Uh, Spotlight story after spotlight story, it was a great introduction to storytelling. And so by the time we did our first true VR piece, which was Pearl, um, that was actually our sixth spotlight story. And it, it, there was another leap that happened when we went from uh, three degrees of freedom, which is what we have on a daydream or, um, or Google Cardboard or um, uh, Samsung gear, um, you have the freedom to look anywhere you want, but it, you, it, it, it doesn't change. The camera doesn't move if you sit down and stand up and walk forward and walk back. And so that was a huge moment 
in Pearl where we could finally stand up and look outside the car. And we did not have the tech or even the creative techniques to really do a good job of handling that. And so that was another thing that I wanted to do in Scenaria is like, let's just get ready for six degrees of freedom and make sure that we there are all these sound field techniques and object-based techniques and motion simulation and acoustic simulation uh, to make sure that we're, we're ready for the next show. Do you think, uh, will there be like a huge difference between the headset version and the phone version? It will be a different experience. Where if we do release it on headsets, um, we're, we played with uh, something that we actually used uh, for our special delivery short that we did with Ardman. Mm -hmm. Where if you tilt the camera up, um, you actually are sort of on a pedestal and you raise up, come down because there is a there is a moment um, in scenario where you're beneath an Arctic shelf. And you can be below the water or above the water, which is a very dramatic thing sonically and also with light. Where it's it's a really interesting thing that you can explore in VR that you're um, simply by moving up and down about nine inches, you are um, on a threshold between two very different worlds of being above the water and below. Where things sound very different, you hear things below that you would never hear above, and vice versa. Um, and so it was important to be able to capture that um, on mobile VR. Um, and so that's, that's how, it, but we haven't really figured out, like, is that going to be a pleasant experience if you look up and feel that you're, right, you know, because it's so easy to disorient people, make them feel dizzy. Um, so we're, we're, we're testing to see if that's going to work, but that's probably what we'll do. Hmm. So I would say that right now, um, it's an incredibly exciting time to v be in VR um, because it's still hard. It's still new. Um, the genre, actually, it's it's not even a genre, but the 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 idiom, the language, the the media format, the marketplace is being defined by every new piece that's being created for it. Um, so, it, but at the same time, it's a lot easier to create VR than it was two or three years ago. Um, so I think that, I don't know if there will be one transformative piece that will bring it to the masses. I think it just it needs to, we need to keep having more and more shows that come out that, that keep asking the same questions, like how do you tell a story in this medium? To what extent are the, is the audience embodied? Coming up with different answers to those questions again and again and again and just you know, filling the world with content that can be organized into some kind of marketplace um, where it's also becomes, it also becomes more accessible where people aren't, you know, covered in cables and spending thousands of dollars um, on a full, you know, six-dof VR headset. So I, that's, that's where I see us in about four or five years, where people can, can, can watch VR alongside traditional movies, uh, sometimes in theaters, sometimes in their homes. Um, I, I, I see that being... A, a very real thing in, in yeah, three to five years, but 
maybe not. <laughs> Honestly, I don't know. So thank you to Scott Stafford talking about his 360 project scenario. And you can check that out on the Google Spotlight Stories app, probably the best way. And it's also available on a variety of other platforms, including Steam, Android, and iOS. And thanks to Laura Beth Cowley for the interview. So we started this episode discussing the, shall we say, safe predictability of the Oscars. Yeah, that's a good way around it. We could counterbalance that by uh, talking about some slightly jollier news with the uh, first European Animation Awards. The Emils. That have been uh, recently awarded few days back and this is a much more encouraging little list i would say mm. as far as like films that why well, there's nothing about smartphones in here yeah. <laughs> we're already on to a winner aren't we it's 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 wonderful to see this sort of almost distilled uh, uh look at the animation industry that this is this is the kind of stuff that we like to see winning you know it's it, it's very honest good stuff isn't it and good to see some titles recur, mm. leading the charge, as it were, would be our uh, mutual favourite of the last couple of years, My Life is a Courgette, mm. slash Zucchini, the vegetable varies, depending on where you're watching it. Yeah. Interesting that it's in the sort of official list, it's My Life is a Zucchini, but in England, I think it's My Life is a Courgette. It is. And in America, it's Zucchini. Yeah. So America is more... European than England these days. Thanks to Brexit. It's won a few, hasn't it? So My Life as a Courgette has won uh, Best Writing in a Feature Film. A very well-deserved, I would say, for that one. Uh, mm-hmm. There's something so pure and innocent about the story, and it's just, it's just a, a joy to behold. My Life as a Courgette uh, won Best Soundtrack in a Feature Film as well. Um, it won the Best Feature Film, as you just said, the Best Director. Uh, so it's done, it's done incredibly well, hasn't it? I think those are all deserving awards. I would have maybe put the sound... I would have, if I was going to have guessed, I would have figured the Red Turtle might have pipped them to the post with the soundtrack award. Mm. You know, I've seen that a bunch of times, and the soundtrack to that is such a huge character in the movie. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, the the music certainly was lovely in my life as a courgette. Uh, I'm not sure if soundtrack means just music or just sound mix or whatever, but anyway. Mm-hmm. Fair play to him. Of course, Red Turtle, uh, I think, comes in a sort of joint second with two of the wins, if I'm mm. not mistaken. Yeah, best character animation in a feature film for the Red Turtle, and best storyboard in a feature film for Red Turtle. It's sort of unfair if you were up for character animation against the Red Turtle... Yeah, and you'd seen the red turtle. It's going to be like, okay. Well, this is this is a lock. Let's face facts. <laughs> I mean, so yeah, this is a film that really stood head and shoulders above others in terms of just animation craft, rather than whatever people thought of the story. You can't really mm. fault its actual technical execution. Absolutely, and I think that's this is the purpose of the the Emil Awards, isn't it? it the Emil Awards was um, instigated. It began when uh, Didier Brunner. Uh, a prominent French producer, was honoured at the Annie Awards. And as we know, as we've discussed, the Annie Awards is something which pays more attention to the, uh, the, the world of animation as opposed to animation as part of a wider, um, you know, screen-based awards ceremony. Um, and so we see these films that it's like by animators for animators in a way. 
So you get some real quality here, the stuff that might not otherwise, well, might otherwise be ignored. Uh, the project to win two awards was uh, Revolting Rhymes again. It's come up a few times this episode. Yeah, the maybe Oscar-nominated <laughs> Revolting Rhymes. Yes, crowd pleaser. Yeah. So that won for Best TV Broadcast Production. Uh, and it also won for Best Character Animation in TV Broadcast Production. Well, it's fine animation, certainly. And in the short films, we had uh, Periphery, the Lonesome Dogs film. Yeah, I remember when we did our, our Annecy, not this year, but the year before, that was one that we both rated really highly, and I don't think it picked up much. But, uh, but it's nice to see it acknowledged in the Emiles, very much so. I was a big mm. fan of this one. That was best background and character design. Uh, best short film overall was The Burden, once again, mm. just tremendous. There's just something about the way that was filmed, the exteriors of it. It just feels so like like you're lost, I guess. Yes. Just far from home, you know. Yeah. It's the use of the music as well, like in between each of the um, actual sort of musical numbers. Just those kind of like very slow bits of business with the strings and stuff, you know, mm-hmm. as it kind of links each segment together. Yeah, it's sort of nightmarish, <laughs> but like, <laughs> but quite... Just just compelling. Yeah, compelling, yeah. perfect, perfect description there. That's the uh, that's exactly what it was for me as well. I was I was just I was enjoying the sort of isolated sense of the, the being in that world and being that kind of at the mercy of whatever the hell was going on. <laughs> you know. Oh, singing fish, right? Fair enough. Let's see where <laughs> this goes. You know, it, it's just a, such a good film. Uh, there is, of course, an interview with the director Nikki Lindroth von Barr. Up on Squiggly. That's our website. If you want to learn more about that film. And uh, some lovely little looks behind the scenes. That's where commissioned film, Last Job on Earth. That was one that uh, had a lot of tongues wagging, I remember. Mm. Moth Collective, very good. Uh, The quality of the stuff coming out of Moth Collective is... uh, It's always good. When you, when, you you see that it's a Moth Collective film, you know that money well spent by whoever's commissioned them I think (laughs) safe to say well they came out of the gate pretty strong yeah those guys they they haven't slowed down no not at all it's some old familiar friends oh squiggly some nods to Amazing World of Gumball with the best writing for TV and Sean the Sheep best storyboard well done very well done a couple of wins for the home team there yeah alongside uh, Moth Collective and Magic Light so there you go. We, we are still part of Europe. It's nice to be a part of Europe, isn't it? Let's not get, uh, you know, too political about it. But it is, when you see stuff like this, it's nice to be a part of, of this. And the UK was very well represented with, obviously, with Sean the Sheep, Gumball, uh, Revolting Rhymes, and Moth Collective in the winners. But in the nominations, we were also very heavily represented. I know Hey Dougie was nominated as well, and a few of the bits and pieces there as well, which is which is fantastic. Um Elsewhere at the at the actual awards, obviously, Rich Williams got awarded his uh, Lifetime Achievement Award, which is always a mm. bit rude to give to a man who's still making a film, I think. <laughs> Here you go. I mean, you're done, right? <laughs> Aww. <laughs> no, very well deserved. I mean, uh, you can keep giving him Lifetime Achievement Awards, and he'll just keep making films just to, just to wind up the people giving him awards. That's great. <laughs> Tremendous stuff. 
Well, elsewhere, there's the usual sort of like comings and goings animation-wise. We're going to be talking a bit about some Christmas stuff in the very near future. So we don't need to go into too much of that, I suppose. But if you head over to squiggly.com, uh, you can check out some of the uh, the new stuff that's been going up. Some nice behind-the-scenes looks at uh, some of the seasonal animation that's been released this time of year. Mm. Various other bits and bobs. Aaron Wood, our marketing director, has put together a uh, Christmas gift guide. I think there are a couple more shopping days left. So if you are struggling for gift ideas for the uh, animation enthusiast in your life... Give that a peruse. That uh, Walt Disney Archives book in there is mammoth. It is absolutely... You could kill a man with it. It's incredible. It's the perfect crime. (laughs) Someone's on your Christmas kill list. Death by a massive book dropped on your head. Speaking of Disney, Ben. Speaking of Disney. Speaking of Disney. The Walt Disney Company has purchased uh, evil old uncle Rupert Murdoch's uh, fox... (laughs) For uh, reportedly $52.4 billion, which is a lot. Big chunk of change. It is, isn't it? Which obviously sets um, uh, Marvel fans in an absolute throff, uh, given that the fact that you know some of their favourite characters could now possibly, um, in a year or so's time when the deal's actually finished, because you know it's not just a case of one signature, this kind of thing... Um, it could mean that some of the Marvel characters are coming back over to the Marvel Comics universe, which I know that you're really excited about, Ben. I am on tenterhooks. <laughs> I, I bloody love the Marvel Cinematic Universe. <laughs> which is your favourite one? Uh, my favourite? Uh, Marvel Man. Marvel Man, yeah. He's marvellous. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, but yeah, it, it, this is a, this is the deal that's been sort of wobbling around for a while. But it, it's it's showing uh, Disney if you can't beat them, buy them. It's that kind of that's the deal with Disney now, isn't it? Uh, first of all, they go and purchase uh, Pixar uh, like ten years ago now uh, for seven billion. Marvel four billion, Lucasfilm another four billion, and now this massive leap to purchase everything, including. Uh, the Simpsons and Futurama uh, are all part of uh, all part of Disney now. They're all under their clutches. It's like a big monopoly game. It certainly is. Yeah. Sooner or later, somebody's going to throw the board over. So does this mean that The Simpsons is a Disney cartoon? Pretty much. Yeah, it does. It also means that uh, Dana Scully is a Disney princess, as she's always been in your eyes, Ben. Oh, in everyone's eyes, surely. <laughs> Oh my god, Twitter is absolutely like buzzing with people pointing out that so and so is now a Disney princess and so and so is now a Disney princess. So I apologize for making that reference because by the time this podcast goes out, everyone will have seen that a million times. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so the alien has a queen, which means that the aliens are Disney princesses. It's not how it works. <laughs> Mind equals blown. <laughs> is it me or are people on Twitter's minds way too easily blown? No wonder the world's in the state it's in. I think you might be onto something there. Once all the minds have been blown, surely that just leaves the strongest. Ah, I see. It's remaining. Like Darwinism. Yeah, absolutely. I think we officially can uh, mark this point in the timeline as when Ben and Steve have run out of steam. <laughs> so thanks for joining us for another squiggly podcast. <laughs> 
Well, good for Disney. From what I've heard, Disney buying uh, the Star Wars movies was the best thing that ever happened to it, right? Like, everyone likes Star Wars again now. Well, there you go. I mean, they always liked it, but they hated the new ones. <laughs> so, And then they started liking the new ones when they were Disney films, so... Well, there you go. Disney I, I seem to have a good sense of giving people what they want, like, rather than trying to, you know, do artsy origin stories. Yeah, definitely. Hopefully this means we'll get more Simpsons, Ben. You know, and the Simpsons will continue forever now. Maybe we, yeah, maybe we can get Disney to make new Simpsons, but like they used to make the Simpsons. <laughs> you know, do it on cells. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> have them draw the characters a little bit off model. Yeah. But that makes it sort of cute and endearing. Get uh, Dan Castellaneta to make Homer Simpson sound like uh, Walter Matthau again. It's a it's a bright bright future ahead, I'm sure, in the world of massive faceless corporate takeovers. So seasons greetings, and uh, we'll catch you hopefully before uh, before too long for our seasonal edition of the Squiggly Animation Podcast. Until then, of course, visit squiggly.com or squiggly.co.uk if you like to type more things in for all our features and interviews and reviews and news etc and you can follow us at squiggly you can follow me at ben l mitchell and steve is at mr underscore s underscore henderson elsewhere squiggly's on instagram at squiggly animation and facebook squiggly magazine so we'll be talking to you again soon until then everyone bye bye happy animating uh thanks for your patronage i don't know Consume.